In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Perhaps no scripture text has logged so much pulpit time than the gospel reading for today. It's a wonderful parable. It's a storehouse of sin and redemption of grace and the refusal of grace. And one can read it from several different perspectives. You know, you can look at the father and see a little bit of yourself there. You can look at the younger son and see a little bit of yourself there. The older son, see a little bit of yourself there. And over the centuries, uh, preachers have tried all kinds of approaches to unpack this great story. In fact, I read about one pastor who did a 16-week-long series on this gospel lesson. And after the 16th sermon, a woman came up to him and said, I'm so sorry that that poor boy ever ran away from home. (laughs) Some think that this story has become a little bit too familiar. Emory University's Tom Long argued that the very familiarity of this parable poses a danger to our understanding of it. This is a story that presents a picture of divine acceptance so radical and sweeping that it sometimes generates astonishment and provoked sputtering outrage. That was then, because then he says, in many churches today... We have heard the story so often that it's losing its shock value. He said, there was a man who had two sons, the story begins, and we know where it's going. Today, the story has all the bland predictiality of a biblical theme park. The awful relationship-shattering words, give me the share of my inheritance, it leaves us unruffled because we can already hear the musicians tuning up their instruments for the dance that's going to follow. And then when the son says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, we ignore that because we can already smell the aroma of the fattened calf being uh, barbecued, and it doesn't even help us to remember the fetid stench of the pigsty that he was in earlier on. Fear not, because that boy is coming home. He always does. The problem with such a take on the story, Long says, is that this surprising, even shocking parable becomes instead a predictable bit of self-help advice. It assumes that once the young prodigal has pulled him or herself together and heads home, the parent then is somehow obliged to throw a party upon the return. The celebration is really kind of one's due for one's turnaround. Understood that way, what we get is a comforting and reassuring tale with absolute predictability. It's just not the shocking and surprising parable that Jesus intended it to be when it was first told. And I think Tom Long may be right. But I also know that the story still packs the power to shock and offend because it speaks of grace. And grace not only has the power to offend some people today,
but it does offend when it's exercised. What many people still want today, I think, is some assurance that their right behavior and their right belief count for something. The notion of unmerited grace still bothers many people a great deal of the time. When I was the night minister with San Francisco Night Ministry, we had an outdoor church called Open Cathedral. And I remember a few years ago preaching on this parable and talking about this grace of God and how it could embrace all sinners, no matter what their wayward living was like, no matter what their prideful self-righteousness was like. And I thought it was a great sermon on the all-enduring love of God for all of God's children. But in that setting, we allowed for people to respond in the middle of the sermon. You can do that too. And so as I was preaching about this love of God, people were having a hard time with it, and they would stop me and say, but what about repentance? Where does repentance fit in? And so one guy even came to the point of saying, if you don't stop preaching grace and start preaching repentance, I'm going to leave. It's like, okay. So I think I said something like this. Um, There is not a single instance that I know of in the Gospels where Jesus requires repentance before he extends a healing hand or a hand of hospitality. Not once. Because repentance is a response to God's grace, not a prerequisite for it. Grace always comes first. So he left. (laughs) I think that Jesus' parable of the father and the two sons underscores that progress. On the surface, it appears maybe that there is some repentance there. The younger son gets tired of his pigsty living and he comes to his senses and he starts rehearsing his confession of sin that he's going to tell his father. But the movement of the story makes it clear to me that the grace of the father is preemptive and not just toward the younger son. Peter Gomes, who was a great preacher, said it this way, the prodigal is willful, foolish, self-centered, and indulgent. He comes home only when he has nowhere else to go. The older brother is petty, spiteful, jealous, self-righteous, and rather lacking in imagination. I think we should pity the poor father who has to live with this conspicuous vice and the even more conspicuous virtue. Perhaps he should have run away from home and left the place to the two of them to fight it out. But he didn't because the story is about him and we know he won't run away. We know his character, his nature, because of, what his sen- because of what his sons 
say, and do. This prodigal story tells us about the character of the father when he says that at his lowest point in his life, I will go home to my father. He didn't expect the fattened calf, but he knew enough to know that his father, by his very nature, by his very character, would not and could not disavow him, and that his father would be there to receive him. He knew that his father's nature was love, and his knowledge was rewarded and returned. So too, I think, did the older brother know this, because he complains. And don't we usually just complain to people that we know will have justice toward us and will keep our confidence? Both sons presume upon what they know to be there and what they know to be theirs, the unconditional love of the father for his children. This, to me, is the heart of the gospel, and this, to me, is the heart of Jesus' message. No one is too far gone, too low, too abased, too bad to be removed from the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. No one is too good, too dutiful, too full of morality for that love as well. It is the nature of the Father to love those to whom he has given life. Some will notice that the prodigal son acknowledges his sins, but it's not the confession of sin that triggers the love, but the love of the Father that triggers the confession. So yes, I'm a true believer in repentance. It's very important. And in this parable, we see that both sons need to repent. Repentance for the prodigal son means learning to say father again. For the elder son, it means learning to say brother again. Repentance is crucial in multiple directions if we're able to find our way and truly enjoy God's blessings in this life. But is repentance the precondition of grace? I don't think so. I think grace always comes first. Several years ago, I was listening to NPR, and Michael uh, Garofalo had a story on Morning Edition about a 31-year-old New York City social worker named Julio Diaz, and he interviewed him about an experience that took place in his life. When he would come home from work every night, he would get off um, one subway stop before his house in the Bronx, and he ate his supper every night at the same diner. So one night he got off the subway uh, to an almost empty platform, and that night there was this unexpected turn. He was walking toward the stairs, and a teenage boy approached him, pulled out a knife, and asked for his money. So he gave the boy his wallet. And as the assailant began to walk away, he said, wait a minute, you forgot something. 
So if you're going to be robbing people all night, you might as well take my coat to keep you warm. So the young man looked at his victim like he was crazy, and he asked, well, why are you doing this? And Diaz replied, well, if you're willing to risk your freedom and your whole life for a few dollars, then I guess you must really need the money. I mean, all I wanted to do was get dinner. And if you want to join me, you're more than welcome. So oddly enough, the young man took him up on his offer, and the unlikely pair walked into this diner and sat together in a booth. Well, shortly thereafter, the manager came up and said hello. The dishwashers came in and said hello. The other waiters came in and said hello. And the kid was amazed that all these people would come and say hello to him. And he, they, he asked him, do you own this place? And he said, no, I just eat here a lot. And he said, but you're kind to everyone, even the dishwashers like you. And so Diaz said, well, haven't you been taught that you should be nice to everybody? And the boy said, well, yes, but I didn't think anybody behaved that way. So the social worker saw an opening, and he asked the boy what he wanted out of life. And there was no answer, just a sad face. So when the bill arrived... Diaz told this young kid, look, since uh, you have my wallet, you're going to have to pay for dinner. Um, but if you give me my wallet back, I'll gladly treat you. And that's what the teen did. He handed over the wallet. So Diaz said, I gave him $20. I figured maybe it would help him. But he also asked for something else in return. And the boy gave that to him as well. And it was his knife. So sometimes grace so astonishes us that all we can do is change the course of our life. That's what repentance is. All we can do is repent and turn around. There are times, I know, when the repentance seems to come first. But look closely. And more often we'll find that it works the other way around. That grace, once demonstrated and experienced, can change everything about us and everything we see and everything we know. Before your grace, O God, we stand amazed, and in our astonishment we turn to you yet again. Amen.